0: Good to see all of you this morning. I'm glad that you've all decided to join us. Uh, let me just pray for us just before we begin. But I'm going to do something a little different. Uh, we're going to be talking about unity this morning. And I'll explain a little bit more later on. But there is something really cool that our high school and middle school kids do all the time, which is when they pray, they hold each other's hands. So in as much as you can with those who you're around, grab the hand of whoever's next to you as we pray this morning. And we'll jump in. Father, we do thank you for this morning. And, Father, we pray, God, that as we open your word, Father, would you display, Father, your majesty to us? Father, would we find ourselves focusing on your cross and everything that accomplished? Father, rather than look into the petty things around us, Father, would we, Father, be moved to trust wholeheartedly in what you've done, and, Father, what you've accomplished by your blood? Father, we love you, and we commit this time to you this morning. Father, we just beg you to teach us, In your name we pray, amen. All right, like I said, we are going to be talking about unity this morning. I feel like that's a theme that we've talked about quite a bit here lately in the life of our church, which I think is a good thing. I think that's really good. But just to kind of set the stage a little bit, what I want to do is just share with you some of the things that I've been learning as far as unity goes, and uh, probably more importantly, share with you some of the things that the Lord has convicted my own heart of as we seek to be a united body of Christ. So that's kind of the, that's the foundation of everything. This is is the stuff that the Lord has convicted me of and spoken into my life, and I hope that um, as we dive into the Scriptures that He will challenge you as well. Um, But just to begin, I've got a a story that I read this week that uh, I thought was really interesting. So reading about this story, it's a news article back from 1999, 2000, somewhere around there a while ago, but it was about a pastor in Saline, Arkansas. Does anybody know where that is? Nobody in first service knew where that is. Nobody. It's all right. Oh, one person does. Look at that. Very good. Saline, Arkansas. I have no clue where it's at. Well, this pastor in Saline, Arkansas, his name was Eric Daniel Harris. He saw within his congregation um, a little bit of division, and so he sought to bring them together, thought and thought, trying to figure out what he could do to unite them. And so uh, he decided to burn the church down. And uh, that's what he did. So, he, he burned it down. Uh, he was prosecuted, by the way, so um, not a good idea. Uh, I figure this morning, let's just, let's turn to the Scriptures. I think that's probably a good place to start. So, amen. Why do you say amen? Because the, the goodness of the Scriptures, it's not for, uh, Either way, I think, I think that's a good place to start for us this morning. Um, so, if you will, turn with me to Ephesians 2. That's where we're going to start. Ephesians 2. starting in verse 11. We're going to read this passage and then give a little bit of a background as to what the early church was going through, specifically here in Ephesus, and then we'll jump into the rest of our time. So, Ephesians 2, starting in 11, we're going to go through verse 22. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh, by hands, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." Now, one of the important things for us to understand is Paul's intention as he is writing to the church in Ephesus. One of the things that you see in the life of the early church, that as Jesus, by his death, sought to graft the Gentiles into the promise that initially existed for Israel, meaning that God's promise, his redemptive work, is no longer only for the Jewish people, but also for the Gentile people, which is you and I, if you're, you're not Jewish— He sought to graft them in, bring them into the promise. So whereas in the beginning they weren't a part of the promise, his work brought them in. Now imagine being a member of the early church, looking at these Gentiles, and when you looked at them, you saw uncleanliness. That's what a Gentile was to a Jewish person, was just someone who was unclean. It was unlawful for the Jewish people to interact with them. It made them unclean, and they wanted to do nothing that would stand in the way of their relationship with God. So they did not interact with them, And that's why Jesus with the woman at the, at the well, the Samaritan woman, um, who was half Gentile even, that's why it was so countercultural for him to interact with her. They did not interact with Gentile people. And so imagine being a part of the early church as you have these two groups of people who formerly did not interact coming together. I mean, you get this, this really strange picture of some of the hardships that they faced from the very beginning. And as we, as we read, one of the things that, that Paul is saying is forget about these external principles, these laws that you think separate yourselves. Christ, by virtue of his work on the cross, has divided this wall of hostility. There's no hostility among you, rather, there ought to not be. And so, I think for us, as we begin, before we move on, there are a couple principles that I want us to understand in this idea of unity. And again, as I said, this is the stuff that the Lord has convicted my heart of, so I want you to look internal asking yourself, man, how is my heart? What is the state of my heart in terms of being unified with those around me? A couple principles. One, unity does not mean uniformity. That means we don't have to all have the same opinions. We don't have to all have the same preferences, you know, same style of dress, same way of speaking, things like that. It's not attained through any sort of, of external thing like that. It all hinges upon Christ's work on the cross. Unity is the state of being joined together with Christ and His church, attained solely by His blood. Therefore, Christ Himself is our peace and our true source of unity. This is where I had to ask myself, all right, so if I see any disunity within my own heart, what does that say about me? It said about me, the hard conclusion that I was forced to, to come to was, It says, I'm not valuing the cross of Christ above all these other physical things. That's the reality. For us, if there is disunity among us, if I have disunity in my heart, it's not indicative of a poor relationship with all of you. It's primarily indicative of a poor relationship vertically with God the Father. If He is the one who brings unity by virtue of His death on the cross— and the blood that he shed, how can we not be unified? Amen. That's a hard truth, but one that I'm so glad that the Lord convicted me of because I think this is essential as we seek to come together as a body of believers and preach the gospel to all those around us. So let's understand those three things as we jump into this idea of unity, what it is, how we can embrace unity, Let's keep those as the framework for us. One of the things that I want to do is walk through the last couple weeks in the lives of the disciples, uh, leading up until Jesus dies and then eventually resurrects and ascends back to his Father. One of the neat things I think that we're going to see in their lives is that as they were brought together and unified around this mission that Jesus had brought them together for, one of the things you see is that that mission, that unity, is disrupted and not in a simple way, but in a really hard and abrupt way, disrupted. And so you see them in utter chaos with one goal. How how do we reunite? How do we get back together? And what we're going to see is Jesus come and gather them back together so that they can move forward with the establishment of the early church, starting on the right foot in unity rather than being so disconnected and distant from each other. So that's our goal. So if you will turn with me to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. That's where we're going to start. Starting in verse 30. Matthew 26:30. Now in this passage we find what is immediately following the last supper. This intimate meal that Jesus got to share with his disciples. Um, And I want you to, as we're jumping into this passage, I want you to try to imagine the intimacy that they must have felt, the unity that they must have had in that moment. As they're sitting there with Jesus in this upper room, you know, a few days out from the time that Jesus is about to go to the cross, and he is walking them through this Passover meal, I want you to catch this intimacy as he is fulfilling all of the promises wrapped up within the Passover meal before their very eyes. Some of them maybe for the first time are finally realizing this is, this is the one. As he told them that it was his body that was going to be broken for them, his blood that was going to be shed for them, and that eventually he would drink anew of the fruit of the vine one day in his father's kingdom. Catch the intimacy of this moment, the unity that they must have had And they wrap up this moment by singing a hymn, which is really common. We read that in verse uh, 30 of Matthew 26. This is when they're leaving out of the upper room. It says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, singing hymns is really common within a Seder meal or a Passover meal. And in fact, after this fourth cup, which is kind of embodying the promises of God for His people Israel— this fourth cup, what is common within a Passover meal is to sing Psalms 113 through 118. It's what's known as a Hillel. You see that in the Mishnah, which is the, the collection of oral Jewish traditions and writings and teachings. So they sing this song as they wrap up the Passover meal, which perfectly embodies everything that Passover is meant to embody in the first place. And so let's read this psalm as we begin it. It'll kind of set the stage a little bit for us as to the specific nature of what their time in the upper room looked like. The things that they are learning, maybe the things that they are realizing for the first time. And so I'll read a couple of them. Psalm 118, verse 5. The psalmist says, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. These are the things that they are singing, leaving the upper room, knowing what is coming, in a state of utter unity and harmony with each other and with Jesus. And then they walk into this next line that, that Jesus tells them. Verse 31. Following the hymn, Matthew records, it says, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He begins to prepare them for what's going to come. Telling them, here we are right now in this moment of harmony, rejoicing around the fact that I am your cornerstone and everything that I've come to do is going to perfectly and utterly reconcile you to your father. But it's not done yet. You're not out of the woods yet. For it's written, The shepherd will be struck, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now we there's a lot of things that happen in between this singing of the hymn and this going to the Mount of Olives, where Jesus tells them this. Matthew doesn't record it, but we find it in John. And one of the things that we see is that Jesus' heart is to prepare his disciples for everything that they're going to face. Everything that's coming trying to prepare them for this scattering that is going to take place. So if you will, you can turn with me to John 14. So John 14:18. Let's look at some of the things that Jesus says to these disciples in an attempt to prepare them for this chaos that's coming. Following his great statement of I am the way, the truth and the life in John 14 as uh, all these disciples are just seeking to find out where he's going. Jesus tells them in 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He's giving them these promises all along. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How many times do you think they had to hear that? Think once was sufficient? Probably not. It wouldn't be for me. This was their master, the one they loved more than anything that they'd committed their entire life to for the past three and a half years what do you mean you are leaving? He says, don't worry. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. We move on in verse 25. It says, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, and my peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Two or two, he continues to prepare them. Not only is he saying these things to you, like my my peace I give to you, I I leave you with my peace, but he's given them this promise too of the Holy Spirit, saying my father is going to send the Holy Spirit, your counselor, your comforter, your keeper. He will teach you all things. Anything that you thought is lacking that I need to teach you, he's going to come and teach you. I think it's essential for us to remember, church, that we have, in as much as we are believers, we have the Holy Spirit. He will teach you all the things that we need to know and constantly bring to remembrance everything that Christ has done. He's not simply seeking to prepare them or maybe encourage them with these words, but He's giving them hard proof of: look, this is the way that I am going to keep you in the middle of this chaos. The chaos is coming but I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. He's coming. Then in John 16, we, we get to this passage where Jesus, as we read in Matthew 26, verse 31, finally tells them this hard truth. John records in John 16, verse 31, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, And will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And immediately following this statement, this hard truth that he is telling these disciples, he enters into this time of prayer, praying for his disciples. But one of the things that we're going to see is he's not simply praying for his disciples, but he's praying for each and every one of us, both specifically as individuals, but also as a body of believers. He says, I don't just pray for you, but I pray for all who are going to hear on account of your message. You're carrying my truth to the world. I'm going to pray for everyone who hears because of you. That's us. And so as we enter into now Jesus's prayer— And look at the things that he is praying. I want you to keep that in mind, that he is praying these very things not just about his disciples, but about you, about us as central church. That's powerful. It's one thing if I say I'm going to pray for you. But as Jesus is praying for us, let us be overcome by the reality of those promises. John 17. We're going to start in verse 1. And what I want you to see is that Jesus frames this entire prayer around one central thrust. He's got one thing that he's trying to communicate throughout the entirety of this prayer. One thing that is framing the rest of his prayers. A lot of just little other things he's praying for. But the main thing he's praying for, for his disciples and for us, is that they be one, that they be united. So it's not just a simple part of his prayer. This is the embodiment of his prayer. Everything that he's saying is centered around this, So let's read in John 17, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, these words being that the shepherd is going to be struck, that these sheep are going to be scattered, that we're going to have tribulation, but take heart because I've overcome the world. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then he continues. And if you pick up in verse nine, it says, Jesus says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. And here's the key, that they may be one, even as we are one. He continues in verse 20. so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now, I think there's some giant truths for us to take away from Jesus's prayer for the disciples and for us as he prays that they be one. But there are a couple of effects that I want to draw out for you real quick. One of the things that we see as Jesus is praying for our unity, he he illustrates a couple of the effects of our unity. He says, I'm praying that they may be one so that the world may know that you sent me. Now, for us, think about your, your mission, your vision, your overarching goal, your desire as a Christian. It's got to be to preach Christ and Christ crucified so that everyone around who has not yet experienced his love can come to know him, right? To teach the world that Jesus really did come from God. But as Jesus says in his prayer, this cannot happen unless we are one. What a huge impact of unity that it demonstrates to the world that Jesus was sent by God. And so this is where I had to ask myself, all right, if this is my one goal to demonstrate to the world that Jesus is from God, lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross and arose again to redeem us and restore us, If that is my goal, what does that say about me when I find disunity in my heart? These are some hard realizations that I had to make. If if I find disunity in my heart, that means I'm not demonstrating to the world that Jesus was sent by God. But he continues, he says, I'm praying that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and that you loved them. If our goal, too, is that the world may know the depths of Christ's love for them, of God the Father's love for them, that's not happening without being one. It just doesn't happen. And so, again, I was forced to come to this realization of, man, it's not not a simple matter when I find this unity in my heart. I am simultaneously preventing the world from seeing that Jesus was sent from God and that He loves them. Which are the very two things we're supposed to be doing from the first place as believers. Hard truths. Yet Jesus continues to pray for his disciples and prepare them. Telling them, I, reminding them, I, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to leave you. But one of the things you see immediately after Jesus finishes praying, that the chaos hits. Immediately after that, in, in John 18, <clears throat> Starting in verse 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, his, his prayer, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. It had begun. And if you remember this story, you remember that as they're in the garden, Jesus and the disciples, he's just wrapped up this prayer for his disciples and for us. In comes Judas with all these officers, kisses them on the cheek. If you remember, Peter takes out a sword, cuts off a guy's ear, beginning to fight. Jesus says, no, you've got to let me go with them. But it's after this moment that you see everything disrupted in the lives of these disciples. Judas betrays Jesus, sells him out for some money. You see Peter denying Jesus Even though he was warned, he was warned that he was going to deny deny Jesus, and he still did it. You you notice that Thomas is nowhere to be found with the disciples. John 20 says that after he's died, he's just gone. Jesus arrives um, into the room where all the disciples are gathered. Thomas isn't with him. We know that as Jesus died on the cross, there was one person, One, one of the disciples was with him John. That's it. The rest gone. They're afraid. Because to align themselves with Christ was to accept death. And they said, don't know if it's worth it. Don't know if it's worth it. What about for us? We've got to ask the same question. Is it worth it? It is. As Jesus hung there by himself, just with John and a couple of other women and his mother, they were gone. Yet Jesus... Still, in the middle of all this chaos, you see him come and in such an intimate way gather these disciples back to himself. They'd had unity, they'd had this harmony, and then in the middle of chaos, they'd been scattered, and Jesus gathers them together. In John 20, if you will, read with me this account where after Jesus is crucified, he's buried, then he's resurrected. And he appears first to a couple of women, Mary Magdalene being one of them. And they go, what do you think they do? They go and tell the disciples. And it says that Luke records that they believed it was an idle tale. The disciples did not believe these women in their testimony that Jesus really had, in fact, resurrected. Believed it was just an idle tale. Up until Jesus himself shows up in the midst of them. And let's read in John 20, starting at verse 19. John records, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, and Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And one of the things you notice is that immediately following this moment, everything was different for these disciples. It wasn't simply a matter of being afraid and caving into their fear, but they finally knew once and for all this Jesus meant what He said. His promises are good, and He has shown up. He resurrected like He promised. And after giving to them the Holy Spirit, you see that their attitudes are are totally different. I can't imagine what this scene would have looked like in purely human terms as they're all gathered together, probably pointing out each other's faults. Peter, you denied them. Thomas, where were you? We're all here. You're gone. John, none of you were even at the cross. Can you imagine the backbiting that is going on in the middle of this group of people as they've all failed in various various ways? But one of the things you see, that as these disciples move out of this moment— Everything has changed for them. That impacts the way that they relate to each other, the way they view each other, the things that they say to each other. It's no longer about this difference, this friction in a difference between opinions and preferences and things like that. Rather, they had all gathered together underneath this banner of truth of Jesus has been crucified and resurrected. What more is there rather than just to tell the world about him? They knew that nothing else matters. Nothing matters. And in my heart, when I have this disunity, this, this this, these whether it's grudges against other people for certain differences maybe they have with me, again, as I said to, to begin with, that's not indicative of you and I having some sort of, of issue that we need to work out. It's primarily indicative of the fact that I'm not clinging to the cross of Christ as I should be. Because as Ephesians 2 outlined, that unity is brought by virtue of His death on the cross and the blood that He shed. That's what brings us this unity. Let that impact the way that we treat one another, the way we talk to one another, talk to another person about one another. That's got to transform everything. And you see that in the lives of these disciples. Let's look at Acts 2. Acts 2, starting in verse 36. One of the things that you see... In Acts 2 is this perfect picture of the unity that this early church had, which, again, as we've already seen, was not always there. Rather, it was bestowed upon them by Christ through His death and through His encouragement to them and given them the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, starting in verse 36, as these disciples had gathered together underneath one vision of Christ being crucified, and we've got to tell the world that He resurrected, underneath that truth, Peter begins his sermon— to all these people. After the Holy Spirit has fallen, Peter begins, and he says, "'Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, "'Brother, what shall we do?' And Peter said to them, "'Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit.'" For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And here we get this picture of their unity and devotion to Christ in His work. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day attending temple together and breaking bread in their homes— They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all of the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Can we say amen to this being our hope? That we may look like this early church, being devoted to the teachings of Christ and seeing his word be spread all throughout, not just here in Collierville, but throughout the nation's, and seeing people come to know him truly. Again, if you remember, that's how Jesus began his prayer, that they know you, the one true God. This is our hope. This is our hope. And so as we move forward into the application piece of this morning, um, there are a couple, I think, key starting points for us in beginning to uh, ask ourselves whether or not we're finding disunity within ourselves, or, or if so, what we need to do. The first is to examine ourselves in our state of unity. You know your heart. I know my heart. <clears throat> and I know, I know everything that my heart thinks and does. And I know that I desperately need Jesus to change my heart. Examine ourselves in our state of unity. Two, recognize the true source of unity, being that it is all founded upon Jesus' work. He's the source of unity not finding any sort of common ground or any sort of compromise between ourselves as far as whatever goes. Jesus is our true source of unity. And number three, cling to the cross of Christ, which necessarily brings true unity. Cling to Jesus' cross. If we can gather ourselves together underneath this idea of preaching Christ crucified and resurrected, like I said, nothing else matters. That's it. We are just by virtue of that all going to be devoted to one another, regardless of any differences we may have. So let's cling to the cross of Christ. I want to end this morning just by reading a passage, another one of Paul's. Paul had to speak to a whole lot of division in the early church because of the way that we outlined in Ephesians 2. One of the things that he says in 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 14 through 15, he says, For the love of Christ controls us, Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, and this is our application, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's our hope this morning. Let us not regard anybody according to the flesh, but rather according to the work that Christ has bore in their lives that he accomplished on the cross and through his blood. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we do thank you for everything that your work has accomplished. And Father, we just pray for ourselves this morning. Father, would you convict where you need to convict? Father, would you uh, encourage us where we need to be encouraged? But, Father, more than anything, would you just continue to lead us to be one? Just as you and the Father are one, Father, our, our desperate plea is make us one, clinging to the cross of Christ, finding everything we need therein. We love you this morning and pray all these things in your name. Amen.